In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Before there was Amazon, before there was eBay, before there was Etsy, uh, there was these things that you would shop by. They were called catalogs. And uh, around early November, when they still did catalogs of this nature, you got this thing in the mail maybe from Sears or Woolworths or Montgomery Ward called Wish Books. Like that. You can actually buy these on eBay. I almost did, but I didn't think $120 for a 40-year-old catalog was worth the price. But there it is. And if you're of a certain age, um, you may remember getting that in the mail, and you may remember receiving it and putting it in your lap as if it were a holy book. And you poured through its pages looking for the life that it promised therein, right? And then you went and got not the 8.5 by 11 pad, but the 8.5 by 14 legal pad, and you began to enumerate every single thing you could imagine ever asking for what was in those pages from G.I. Joe to the little bake thing, to whatever it might have been, action figures, whatever. It was all there. And you just, it was just something about that, that you were just impelled to look at it like it was life and to record everything that you could ask. And look, all right, um, before we get too nostalgic and before we so are overwhelmed with that memory, I I know full well that that in some ways represents the very thing that's wrong with Christmas (laughs) these days, how that represents in some ways maybe perhaps a distortion of what we're to think of. And and yes, it's just kind of bald-faced avarice and, and it's like it's our collective insanity because on December 26th, we all go, was that really all worth it? And then come next November, we're going, let's do it again. And... Um, we go, did we really spend that much? And our kids like don't even remember what all that stuff was. And so I get it. Like I'm not trying to um, glorify uh, the object of our desire when you were that kid pouring through those wish books. But I'm just, for the sake of an illustration, will you do me a favor? Set aside what the object of the desire was in that moment and just focus on the nature of the desire. Because I think even in that illustration that you know, is an expression in some ways of our collective insanity. There's something rather beautiful and central to what we're going to talk about today in Jesus's, one of Jesus's last few things to say in his Sermon on the Mount. We are almost at the end, and he is bringing everything into sharp focus. And before he's done, he needs to say one more thing to us about praying And a few weeks ago, he introduced us into what it is to pray. How do we pray? What's the approach to prayer? This week, he wants to tell us just how God thinks about our asking him. Because see, when you're a kid, you ask for everything. Because you don't have a choice. Because you can't do jack for yourself. You need it. You have to ask for it. But then as you, quote unquote, mature, how does that change? You begin to learn to do more stuff for yourself. And therefore, you don't have to ask for as much. It's the nature of our maturing. In Jesus, he's out to here to tell us when it matures. You know who's really maturing in him in faith? Not the ones who ask little, but the ones who ask much. And so the question that he's out to answer for us today, ask how. And I think in these five verses, he's going to give us three ways in which we ask of God in prayer. You ask with abandon, you ask with affection, and you ask with astonishment. With abandon, with affection, with astonishment. 
Let's see if that's the case. If you're able to stand. Mickey, sit. Matthew chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? This is the bewildering word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Um, a lot of the things that Jesus has said, you've got to kind of sit there and simmer on it. You've got to kind of scratch your cheek or your chin for a while and go, what does he mean by that? On this text, it's like, no, it's really accessible. As they say, the theology is on the top of the page. And what he's saying here is pretty much this. To know God, to know God is to ask much of God. It's not like he's trying to get, come across or, or to put out of your mind what it means, like what it feels like to walk up to the Lincoln Memorial. Like this amazing, majestic image of the 16th president. And you stand there and you're amazed by it, but that thing is lifeless. It will just sit there and it will sit there forever until Washington crumbles. That is not God. You can sit there and marvel at whatever Abraham Lincoln might have said or done, but you can't talk. You can't, and he can't respond. Jesus is out to say that's not who God is. To know him is to ask of him, and to ask of him not in a meager, miserly way, but to ask with abandon. Without inhibition, without reservation. To know God is to ask God with abandon, and you hear that in the very first verse. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. If you were a kid, like I mentioned at the top of the sermon in the introduction, who pulled out the, the wish book like, like our Jewish friends pull out the Torah from the case in the synagogue. If you were the one who, whose hand cramped up at the end of making your list about all the things that you might ever want. Do you know one thing that you didn't do when you went through that process? You know what you didn't do? You didn't do the math. There was no math in making the list. You couldn't count that high. You weren't thinking in terms of cost. That never entered your mind when you were doing that. You were asking with abandon, without the slightest sense of whether anybody could measure up or pay up. And Jesus is saying, look, when it comes to God, you must not think of him as a distant deity. You must not think of him as some sort of ethical ideal. You must think of him as one who is, who is there, who hears, and who responds. That's who he is. He does not play possum with us. But he says that there is something about asking. Jesus says, if you will just get past the idea that God is either too busy or too high or that you are too low and too unconsequential to bother him, get past that. Ask with abandon. 
Because there's something about asking when it comes to receiving. And he says that in verse 8. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened unto you. If you're an Israelite, you know that God is holy. The very temple architecture in Jerusalem, the very implements that the priesthood would use to mediate God's presence before themselves and the people, you all know that that communicates his highness, his majesty, his holiness. And Jesus has no quibble with that in this passage. He's not changing your picture of God. He's just trying to make sure that at the same time that you think of him as high and majestic and holy and pure, that you also think of him as approachable and accessible and present and attentive. He is faithfully present. And you don't know him if you don't think of him in that way. And that's why you ask with abandon. But therein lies the question, for what? Ask for what, man? Because... As soon as I hear Jesus kind of say, ask, seek, knock, and not put any qualifiers on it, I'm thinking, really? No, you, mm, what's the point? Like, he knows what I need before I ask him. We've heard that before. Jesus has said that before. But ask, seek, knock, like, what do do I ask for? Because in our world, you hear a word like that, and you drop it into a Western culture that is thriving on a culture of accumulation, then it's really easy to sort of jump to the conclusion that we just sort of think of God as our cosmic concierge. That he is the one that comes out of the lamp. You rub the lamp. Okay, Lord, um, do your thing. Um, you know, we, we walk to God and we think of him like, like the trans, like that little, what was it, replicator on Star Trek. I would like uh, the Beatles white album and some warm butterfat. Um, you can ask for just about anything. What do we ask for? Ask, seek, knock. What for what? Real simple. For what is good. You ask for what is good. What's the whole Sermon on the Mount been about? The whole Sermon on the Mount is this. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, come here, come here, come here. No, no, come, come, come here. This is the good. This is what's good. I know that 10,000 other voices are telling you what's good. This is the good. This is the life. This is the truth. This is good. Ask, therefore, what goes with the good. Look, I can, okay, I pray for my pear tree yesterday. That's nutty. It's not. It's fruit. It's life. It's gift. It's a means by which I might praise him. And therefore, there are two leaves that are healthy. And I took pictures of it. And I'm going to water it every day. And who knows what will happen. But I am no fool for asking him for that thing to flourish despite my neglect. Ask for what is good. And what is good? Roll back the tape and listen to what Jesus says is the good. He wants us to see with certain eyes. And therefore it is not nutty for you to ask to be able to see someone. Even someone that you're angry with in a way where you are not only angry with them. Because look, bitterness is cheap, and anybody can imbibe that, and anybody can kind of wear that like a, like a badge of honor on their heart. You know what's harder? 
to be able to be wronged but not be bitter. You know what you ask for? You ask for the ability to see somebody that you're angry with as not only something you're angry with. You ask to be able to see somebody as something more than just an object of your sexual desires. What do you ask for? You ask for being so gripped by a love that you can actually entertain the possibility of loving one who is an enemy. You ask for being delivered from this sense that you kind of inherit from the culture you're in that says your salvation is in your stuff. You ask for an ability to trust him, trust him even in the darkest places so that you would not be swallowed by your anxiety. But you ask him to begin with, to first believe that you come to before him broke that you would actually believe that you've got nothing to offer him, to commend yourself to him, and that the only way you will ever walk in his way is for him to be filling you up by by his own work. Now, all of that, all of those things that I've just referred to, it may require something more than you asking for those things, but it won't require less. And when you ask for the good, you ask with abandon. When you're kids and you ask for stuff and you get the gifts, you love those gifts and you almost forget, like, oh, thanks, and I'm going to play. And then you forget that stuff. And then when you get older, you know what you most want? You don't want their gifts. You want them. It's the same way with God. What you most need is him. What you most want is him. And therefore, in asking for all of this good, you're asking for him to know that he is good even when everything around you is sorrowful. N.T. Wright, he says this about when it comes to asking for what is good. He says, for most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. The problem is that we're not eager enough to ask for the right things. There is a place for asking with abandon. Now, as soon as I say that, there's a part of me and probably a part of you that's going, all right, but... I've done that before. I asked with, with abandon for good things, and those good things did not pan out. And maybe I'm a little disillusioned by that prospect, so I'm just going to do my thing, and if God blesses me, fantastic, but I'm done asking. An understandable experience, if that's your experience. How do you pray with abandon? if you've only been met with a certain kind of disillusionment in the face of the asking. Might I suggest to you that you consider what Jesus prayed for and what he asked his father with abandon. All you gotta do is go to John 17 to hear his rather elaborate and beautiful and elegant prayer, both for those who are his disciples and those who will come to know him through his disciples. And what does he ask for them? He asks that they would be kept in his name that their confidence in him would remain strong, that they would be kept from the evil one, that one who means to kill, seek, to lie, kill, and destroy, the one that is out to seek and, and on a search and destroy mission of our joy, that he would be kept at bay. Jesus prays that they would be sanctified in his truth, set apart with an understanding of who he is, that they would be genuinely embraced by that word and changed by that word and transformed by that word and by the power of that spirit, convinced 
enduringly of its truth so that they might be different in this world. And he also prays that they might be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. And you hear those prayers and you go, that's awesome, Jesus, but maybe you should pray harder. Because with everything that Jesus has prayed for, we look around or we look within and we go, I want more of that to be true in more ways, perhaps, than I see. When I was a college ministry intern back at a Baptist church in San Antonio, Texas, they had a prayer room. It was open 24-7, and people could sign up for hour shifts. And because I was the spiritual one, I signed up for the 3 o'clock in the morning shift. Thank you for being, catching my facetiousness. Because there were plenty of nights when 3.58 rolled around, and it's like, I missed it, I guess. Okay. Um, but when I did go, and I stared at the court board of all the things on that wall for people in terminal conditions or decade-long estrangement, I just stared at that board and thought, what am I doing? What is this for? How can this help? And then the phone would ring, because if you needed prayer, you could call, and they would say, would you pray for me? And I would. And it was bizarre how grateful they were. I get why you might feel like, what's the point? How will this help? But all you got to do is go look at the way Jesus prayed for some impossible things and go, you know what? If he did that, maybe I am no fool for asking with abandon. And so that's what he's trying to tell us. But we don't ask with abandon like it's some sort of mechanical reaction, like if this happens, then this happens. Jesus is actually setting the, the exhortation to ask with abandon in a deeper context. Why do we ask with abandon? Because he says, get this, why did Jesus pray with abandon? Because of the Father's affection for the Son. And guess what? Jesus is out to tell us that same relationship applies to you. And to me even. You ask with abandon, he says. Why? Because you can ask with affection. And why can you ask with affection? Because of God's affection for us. That's his argument. And we hear that and we go, affection? You mean the God who is gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy, who who forgives sin and transgression and iniquity, but by no means clears the guilty. That God, that God has affection for us, the one who is high and holy and fearsome. Yes, this God. You may ask with affection for this God. Why? Because listen. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's tapping into something really simple. He's making a really basic argument from the lesser to the greater. What's the lesser? Mom and dad. Teachers. You. There's this natural impulse in moms and dads. They they have this impulse to supply needs and desires and wants of their children. Teachers, they have this natural bent and aptitude and skill to provide answers to those who are students who are asking their questions. It's this natural sort of inclination, but it's not just an impulse. It's not just a pattern. 
Jesus is talking about not just an inclination, but a delight in those who give, to give to those who ask. So there's this moment in This Is Us. It's the episode after we find out why Jack the father has died which we learn very early in the series that he dies, which changes the whole way you see the whole series because if you know someone is dying, you think of every scene they're in with a different way of seeing. Oh, that we would live with the same kind of world, the same kind of eyes. But in the episode after we learn about how their father dies, we learn about one way in which he loved them so by doing something so mundane as picking out for them a car, a Jeep Wagoneer. In this scene... Two minutes, 39 seconds. I just want you to watch his eyes. I don't care about the car. I don't care about the wife or the kids. That's fine too. Just watch Jack. Hey, guys, slow down. Watch out. With the... I want a pink car. car. We have to get a four wheel drive. We have to get a four wheel drive. Guys. Hey, can I remind you that we are guests in this dealership? Yes, so we're going to use our indoor voices. You two are just the sort of bright and shiny couple I would love to put into this bright and shiny Jeep wagon here. Hi, hey, Mel Buchanan. Jack Pearson, this is my Hi. wife, Rebecca. Hi. Mel, I think the uh, wagon here is a little too steep for us. Mm-hmm. Do you see those kids over there? They're ours. All of them. <laughs> They're expensive. All of them. <laughs> We don't really need anything bright and shiny. We just want something reliable and affordable. Yeah. And safe. Well, uh, we've got some used cars right this way. There we go. Right. I mean, it's not flashy, but uh, it's got low mileage, big trunk. Um, it's going to have a few good years left in her. Everything is automatic on the inside. Mel, you and I should go into your office and have a talk so we can't figure something out. But, Jack, we should at least look at the car, though, first, before you go in there and talk to him. We haven't even looked at the car yet. Tell the kids, I'm, I'm gonna go finish up with that. Okay. All right. Uh, you guys, your dad bought the Wagoneer. I had time to show you the speech he gives to the car dealership. Season 2, episode 15. Happens the last three minutes and you'll cry. This is not an argument for commercialism, my friends. 
This is an argument for showing you an illustration of what it's like to delight in giving, no matter what it costs. Jesus is making an argument from our humanity to make an argument for the nature of our divinity, of his divinity. If it's true of fathers and mothers and teachers to love those who they give to, to love that, then guess what? God is all the more positioned and finds all the greater delight, and therefore we ask with affection from him. If he delights to give, then you have to imagine God as one who is not put upon, not wearied, not exasperated by our asking. And therefore we ask with affection. And I wonder, do you hesitate to ask because you cannot ever imagine him being benevolent to you? Is he just an ethical ideal? Is he one who is at a remove that is not present but in your mind is just only absent? Jesus is out to reframe our picture of God who is a father who loves to give. And that's why we ask with affection because who are we most disposed to think of with affection given our frailty, our awfulness, our inconsistency? Who, who are we most inclined to have affection for? The one who has affection for us in spite of us. But there's the rub, right? The argument Jesus is making is that the God has great affection for us and therefore we may ask not only with abandon but also with affection. But he's out to tell us that there's a reason for us believing that there's affection. Because look, I can lie to myself every day. We can all do this sort of Stuart Smalley thing. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Right? And this is what culture has on offer to you right now. Believe in yourself is the best it can do. Follow your bliss. Don't let anybody tell you who you are. You do you. That's what the culture's got right now. Oh man, get ready. If that's your supper, you need a word from the outside. And therefore, not only can we ask with abandon and with affection, we can ask with astonishment. Why? Because of two little words there in the last verse of the text. Let's hear it again. If you then, who are evil, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Wow, two words. First word, evil. You are evil. Jesus says the sweetest thing sometimes. <laughs> Look, I'm inconsistent, I'm frail, I'm broken, I'm ugly. Uh, you know, all sorts of things. You know, run the, run the rap sheet. I want you to find Jesus calling out in the Sermon on the Mount. And I go, yep, yeah, that, that, yep, nailed it. He nailed me. Like he saw me coming. But evil? Yeah. Our capacity for selfishness is unmatched. Our capacity for hatred and bitterness. Our capacity for turning a blind eye to need, it is astounding. Evil is a, is a, is a character, is a, a proper way of Jesus characterizing it, but, but note very full well, when is he saying that? He's saying it in the context of God's willingness to have great affection for us. So once again, we have before us the, 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 the two um, gravitational pulls. And when we think about 
Jesus and to think about God, the way C.S. Lewis characterized George MacDonald. George MacDonald, to him, was the biggest picture of Jesus, the perfect picture of Jesus, because he preserved both God's tenderness and his severity. He's both. He's good, but he's not safe. And so he will tell you what you need to hear, even if he says to you, you're evil. And so that's the first word you've got to notice there that makes you think you can ask with astonishment. You are evil. But when he says the other word, he says the word, you are evil. You, you are evil. What, is, what does Jesus not say? We are evil. He doesn't include himself in that constituency. He doesn't say, you know, we're all evil together. He says, you, you're evil. <laughs> and if you're here today and the best you got for Jesus is that you're intrigued by him or suspicious of him, but you're at least willing enough to come in here and darken the doorstep of a church, you hear that and you go, well, isn't that off-putting? This Jesus, loving Jesus, he's calling everybody evil except himself. How bizarre. Friends, this is, that, that one word and the absence of one word is the one word upon which our whole faith holds together. He is like us, but he is not like us. He is what the author of Hebrews says to us. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but he was tempted in every respect just like us, yet without sin. He is wise, but he is different. He is like us, but he is not. And that is the whole gospel. Because he is like us, he is the one able to understand us and sympathize with us and being able to redeem us by his blood. But because he is not like us, his sacrifice can cover all our sin once forever. That's the gospel. And that should utterly astonish you. It may put you off going, man, I am not going there. How high is he to think he is like that? That's his beauty. That's his brilliance. That's his divinity. He is like us, but he is not. You are evil. I am evil. He is not. And that's a good thing because finally, here's a righteous one who dies for evil people. And therefore, the gospel is good news because in the gospel, you are forgiven. But do you know why the gospel is astonishing news? Because if that's true, then you and I do not have to waste the rest of our life trying to prove something to God in order for him to love us. He's already made that rather clear. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And because of that, this is who I am. And who I am and who I am. And that's what impels us to risk everything. And that's why we can ask on the basis of astonishment. Romans 8 says this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with himself graciously give us all things? That's why we ask with astonishment. And we ask from this point of view that John Calvin puts pretty briefly. He says this, our prayers depend on no merit of our own. But all their worth and hope of success are founded and depend on the promises of God. It's not how many times you ask. It's not how worthy you are to ask. It's on the basis of his grace to you that we ask with abandon, with affection, with astonishment. 
So what does that mean for you and me? If you're in this room today and you have a certain respect for Jesus, but you have, you probably wouldn't say you have reverence for him yet. You are no fool to ask God in the most counterintuitive way you could imagine. Like, I'm not sure if he's even there. I'm not sure if you people are just sort of um, bewildered or uh, under some sort of delusion and needed some sort of wish fulfillment. I'm not sure about y'all. If that's you and you're not sure about him, it's not crazy. You're no fool for asking God to help you see his beauty, to help you see his love, to help you see your need of him. That might be nuts to you, but you're no fool for asking. And if you're in this room and you've asked before and it hasn't turned out like you've hoped and you feel a little disillusioned, you are no fool for asking still. If only because Jesus kept asking too and still prays now. And if you are kind of like me, who needs to be reminded to ask because I think too much of my skills and too little of God's power, who tend to think of God as just sort of some sort of boss to work for or some sort of ethical ideal to embody, but not as one to whom I might bring great desire. If that's your problem, because that's mine, among others, you are no fool for asking bold things. That's why we gave you a few weeks ago this thing. I'm sorry, Stacy, they got whited out. My bad. Prayer template. It's on the website this week. You're no fool for asking bold things on the back of that page. You're no fool for asking things that only God could do. You can pray for pear trees, like I did. You can pray for people that you started a conversation with nine years ago, and then you haven't heard from them in about 18 months, and then suddenly they resurface, and you start talking with them again. You can pray for that. We all play a long game in this life. You can pray for anything. Will God answer? I don't know in what day he does or what timing or whatever. All I know is this. On the basis of what he said about asking with abandon and asking with affection and asking with astonishment for what is good in his sight, you are no fool for asking. Amen.